How's it going, everybody? Dan Fagella here at Sentient Potential. I'm lucky enough to be joined by Jeff Orkin, who's at the uh, yep, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, uh, premier expert in the domain of artificial intelligence. Has worked a lot on gaming in addition to other domains, and we're happy to have him on board. Jeff, how are you? I'm good. I'm actually not at MIT anymore. <laughs> so. Whoa! Well, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta edit which websites I'm looking at to get your info. <laughs> Uh, I'm still a research affiliate there, but I finished okay. my PhD in January and started a company called Giant Otter Technologies. Giant uh, where Otter. I'm trying to take some of the AI work I was doing at MIT and uh, apply it to real-world applications. Awesome. Okay, cool. Um, so I think we'll be able to catch up on that as well because I know we, we talked to recently with the folks at Neurala, their uh, robotic startup out of Boston. As well, I think okay. they were BU. They're not MIT folks, but it's always cool to hear about some startup cool. stories too. And out of curiosity, uh, as I ask most folks who are on board, whether it's AI or life extension stuff, how did you initially get involved in this field? Was it an interest going into your schooling, or did it emerge sort of through your studies? Or how, how did you bump into AI? Um, I've kind of taken a strange path that hmm. brought me into AI. I, I kind of say I've gone through my life in the uh, Benjamin Button kind of order of, uh, <laughs> I, I was always interested in games and um, and uh, filmmaking, and, and so uh, after undergrad, in undergrad I studied a combination of computer science and art, and I got into game development, and um, I originally was interested in animation, but uh, as I started working on that, I found what was more interesting is what was driving the decisions about what animations to play at which time, which is really the AI, like what action do you want to take yeah. at any given time. So without knowing anything about AI, I started working on AI professionally. Um, this was in 1996 when there really wasn't very sophisticated AI in games at that time. So AI was kind of the thing that the junior programmer did when all the senior guys were busy with graphics and physics. Yeah. Um, so I started working on AI, and that got me more interested in it. I started digging into the academic research, which um, led me to want to uh, study it more formally. So I, I started out working in AI, and then I went to school to study AI. And um, um, yeah, so so I kind of did it backwards. But um, hmm. so. Uh, That's a little bit so, of your backstory, how you bumped into the stuff. And obviously now you're in the business world of AI. Um, right. So so uh, once I got to grad school, um, what I found was that AI is a very fragmented field and, and it's become very specialized. You know, there's uh, a lot of progress in uh, specific algorithms to mine patterns and data, a lot of progress in speech recognition. But over the years, um, people have kind of uh, strayed from the original vision of um, complete systems that reason like humans. And, and uh, coming from games, I was really interested in simulating human behavior. And uh, in grad school, I started to focus a bit more on understanding language, so characters that you can converse with open-endedly. Um, I felt like in the game industry, I, I spent 10 years in games, and uh, I felt like um, there's a lot of progress in uh, simulating combat and physical interaction, but 
uh, very little progress simulating social interaction and dialogue. Mm. So um, in grad school, I, I had the chance to kind of take a step back and rethink how do we create uh, intelligent systems that are socially intelligent and understand language. And um, what I realized after working on it for uh, my first year of grad school is I realized it's an intractable problem to uh, to program the way we've been programming characters and games. Uh, language is it's just too open-ended, too dynamic, too uh, too varied, uh, nuanced. So uh, so I went this other direction where I started recording thousands of people online playing different roles in an environment mostly focused on a restaurant environment. And um, I recorded 16,000 people playing as customers and waitresses and used that data to automate uh, an AI waitress who can converse with open-endedly with type text or speech. And she um, can say and understand 18,000 different things. Um, and so now, uh, commercially, I'm looking at how can this impact education. Um, I've uh, partnered with uh, someone from the uh, Harvard Grad School of Education uh, who's been doing research that shows playing different roles in a virtual environment um, enhances empathy and lets you understand other people's perspectives. And so it's kind of uh, it was kind of an ideal complement to what I was mm, working on. Yeah. So. Right now, we're working on uh, a number of projects. One is an anti-bullying intervention for middle and high school students, Great. where uh, by interacting with uh, simulated characters in a school, you learn to take the perspectives of others. Uh, but we're also looking at applying this to language learning, uh, therapy for autism, uh, ways to transfer institutional knowledge at big corporations, um, management and leadership training, Anything where there could be an awkward conversation. We've talked to doctors <laughs> about uh, training medical students in how to have difficult comfort conversations with um, with cancer patients and their families. Mm. Um, so anything where you'd, you'd like to practice in a safe environment before facing the real thing. Um, so that was a long-winded answer. I don't even no. remember that's uh that's cool though it's cool to see how you made that the the transition there and that was kind of where i was leading was obviously you began in gaming um sort of yeah. i was going to be picking your brain as to how you see gaming kind of leading the application of ai or the development of ai it sounds like right there you start off with a fun waitress game people playing stuff like a multi online player kind of thing and then sure. modeled that and now are spinning that kind of technology and process into being able to develop important social skills. Um, where else do you see gaming kind of as a plow for the development of the field as a whole? I imagine there's so many other areas. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the thing about games is that uh, you can very easily collect data about any scenario you want. You know, if you, just taking my restaurant example, if you wanted to actually record data in a real restaurant, uh, there are so many hard, unsolved problems with computer your vision yeah. and speech recognition, um, whereas if you collect data in a game environment, you have a detailed log of exactly what happened yep. at every point in time. And so that data can let us leapfrog a lot of the, the hard vision problems that stump robotics and uh, get to the meat 
of the problems of really simulating um, human cognition and reasoning and um, understanding abstract concepts and, uh, and using language. So, um, so that way, I think games can really lead the way because we can simulate scenarios, learn how to how to uh, how to imitate uh, real intelligence, and then transfer to uh, to robotics or possibly other applications. Cool. So being able to, I guess your your initial example with the waitress is a pretty simple one of take taking everything in from that environment. I mean, it's all text. It's all, this person clicked the mouse here and their their character yeah, was at this square. Yeah. yeah. And being able to use that to model social situations. Cool. And, and um, do you see particular kind of uh, applications or developments in, in gaming AI bringing themselves into other domains as well. Obviously, the military, and now this, you could probably still consider it gaming. Oh, can you hear me now? Yeah, you're, you're back. You're, okay. You're breaking up for a second there, but um, you were asking about other applications? Yeah, I, I know, for example, the military, you probably still call it gaming. They they have their military simulation Ser games. Serious games. Serious games, yes. It's a little bit more serious when you're talking about that kind of stuff. Um, so that's another application, it seems, really taking virtual reality almost to kind of that next level. Um, have you seen other developments that maybe you worked on in gaming or you saw in gaming that are now having serious implications outside of just, you know, Nintendo? Well, I mean, I, I think uh, beyond AI, games are just a, a fantastic testbed for new tech. Technologies when you see what happened with the Kinect, you know, Kinect came out as a gaming device, but gaming was just a way of uh, forcing a mass market um, uh, development of, of cheaply available 3D cameras. And once those became available, people hacked them, used them in all sorts of ways to uh, to very quickly render scenes uh, to uh, create new user interface devices to control robots. Um, and, and so I think what happened with the Kinect is similar to what could happen with, with a lot of applications of AI, is that you can you can uh, get them out to a mass market and um, do some sort of provocative experiments and then uh, gets it out to the rest of the world to, to adapt in other ways. Cool. Kind of like a, a petri dish of, of sorts when it comes to the application of something. You get a lot of people involved, and not just scientists, but just regular people engaging with a particular kind of technology. See what happens, see how it can be applied, and see where it goes from there, basically. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing is that more and more the way technology in the world is going, um, anyone can be a scientist. Like, you look at what happened with um, the game... Uh, Folded, you know, Folded. Folded, no. So Folded is a game out of University of Washington. That's a game about protein folding, um, because um, uh, years ago there were, uh, or there still are, some really hard computational problems in uh, figuring out the right way to fold a, a protein. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know biology to describe it um, yeah. correctly, but uh, this really hard computational problem of, of folding some protein in 3D. And so um, University of Washington built a game around it 
and um, made it available to anyone to play. I found that these totally random people were actually expert protein folders, <laughs> and uh, they're. I, I don't remember the exact specifics, but um, there's some great stories of how uh, um, some ordinary people at home, uh, I don't know if they found a cure or something that could lead to a cure, but in, in weeks, something that people had been working on for years yeah. and hadn't solved. That's that open source science to a respect. Now it's it's sort of ringing a bell now. I'm sure I did hear about that on more than one occasion now that you kind of talk about it. I didn't know the name of the game, but that makes sense. And I think there's so many other examples of that as well that are kind of coming to the fore. Um, and, and that was sort of where I wanted to go uh, next as well, Jeff, was the world of AI obviously has pretty broad implications, as I had mentioned to you off cam for a second here. Um, you know, we had caught up with Ben Gertzold a month and a half ago or so about some of his sort of thoughts on that uh, domain and department of more general intelligence, really working towards that. Um, what do you think are going to be, like right now, I'd say on the aggregate, um, artificial intelligence hasn't really drastically shifted too much. I mean, to the point of living day to day in a different way. Maybe I buy my airline tickets different. Maybe the monsters I fight on the Internet are way smarter. Um, and maybe my Amazon book references, you know, get me to buy more stuff. But it, it hasn't, some people would argue it hasn't drastically altered that much about our way of life. Where do you see kind of some of the initial bigger shifts of AI moving into the normal human world, whether it's business, education, wherever, where we're going to see kind of the more drastic potential promises of AI itself? Well, I mean, I, I think all the things you just mentioned are drastic when you take them all together, like you're... The way we live is totally changed. We have these mobile devices that um, are, are getting closer and closer to the uh, Star Trek uh, communicator, yeah. where you can ask it anything and it can answer a question, um, and it, it knows what you like. And it, I, I mean, I think the direction things are going are towards more predictive technologies that can dissipate your needs and suggest them before you even ask for them, but. It's a gradual thing. I think it's yep. like uh, the sci-fi movies where C-3PO is going to the door anytime soon. Mm -hmm. um, and even that stuff uh, is going to happen more through um, integrating more technologies into humans, either assistive or, or uh, to augment humans. Uh, you know, you, you look at Google Glass, that's an augmentation. You know, mm -hmm. suddenly you can literally look at the world in a different way because you always on heads up display so I, I think it's a, a gradual shift but and when you look back 10 or 20 years you're like wow yeah 10 or 20 yeah there's some pretty significant differences uh, yeah but I mean I, I think um, yeah the big trend is, is uh, data driven interaction and predictive analytics and um And the other thing, uh, kind of like that folded example, is the idea of human computation, that um, you can kind of flip AI on its head and say, how can computers manage humans to solve hard problems? And uh, I think we'll see more and more of that. Um, I mean, you already see these incredible marketplaces like Amazon Mechanical Turk, where you can get humans to do anything for you. And, and at MIT, there's... Uh, research group led by Rob Miller that does um, all kinds of work on crowdsourcing and 
Um, in particular, he's had students working on some really interesting just-in-time crowdsourcing, mm-hmm. where um, if there's some, say there's some task you want accomplished, like you want someone to edit a paper you're working on as you're working on it, um, you can have people standing by, so as you're working on something, they're actually in real time uh, doing computational work, uh, humans instead of machines. So there's kind of this gradual shift towards um, the idea that you know you can just push a button and something will happen, and who cares what's on the other side of that? It might be human, the uh, machine, and more and more it's becoming a mix of the two. So. Um, so yeah, I think there's kind of this uh, melding of, of what's human and, and what's what's AI. And, and I think that that's that brings us, you know, uh, closer to kind of the bigger scope and scale questions. Obviously, um, a lot of AI type of conversations, uh, you know, certainly with guys like Ben, will lead towards sort of singularity type scenarios. Some people are a little bit more optimistic or aggressive in terms of their approach to. How quickly you know we'll all enter a transhuman or posthuman state? Some people pretty much think you know we'll live out the rest of our lives as humans. Um, we'll just kind of have greater extents and more access to cool stuff through technology. Um, where do you kind of lean in, in that department? Obviously, you talk about augmentation with Google Glass. Obviously, there's a lot of talk of augmentation sort of beyond Google Glass uh, of you know whether it's contacts or whether it's retinal implants or whatever can make that even more instant, even more accessible, even more functional, um, and that those progressions are almost inevitable, some would argue. Um, do you see those as sort of realistic future considerations for folks like ourselves? Some people do. I know other people kind of don't. So it's interesting to kind of get your perspective there. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, uh, it's hard to say. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not the best at predicting these things like no but yeah it's tough to be i guess <laughs> uh, it, it may it's definitely caused a buzz with with tech tech people and researchers whether the general public is okay with uh wearing them i i can't really guess but um eventually we're going to get there if it's not if it's a google glass it'll be another form factor yeah uh, I don't know enough about biology to say, but undoubtedly we'll get to a point where um, there can be devices that, that bypass your eyes and plug directly into your brain and, and, and have the same effect of Google, Google Glass of, of letting you uh, see displays laid, overlaid over the real world. Um, so all that stuff is coming in, in one way or another. Um, and, and what seems kind of today 10 years from now won't so um yeah we're like i said before i think we're, we're heading in this direction of kind of this uh melding of, of human and, and ai and where the distinctions you won't even necessarily think about the distinctions as much oh okay collaborative system think about the distinctions um Jot that down. Now I, I know we're approaching our our time here, Jeff, and I don't want to take any more than I got to. But I always uh, I I always ask sort of out of curiosity, and also because I think it's probably the prime driver of a lot of our work. Um, you know, you're working right now uh, with sort of education, a whole other realms, a whole other realms of uh, artificial intelligence with regards to um, 
kind of social interaction. I'm going to make sure we get your website and things like that so people can check all that out. I've got other folks who are working on, um, interviewed other folks who are working on life extension or more direct AGI kind of projects or other people that are really focusing on kind of the, the ethical conundrums and philosophical ramifications of the proliferation of virtual reality, for an example. A lot of different esoteric things. And I think in general, pretty much everybody I talk to is aiming to, in some way, build a better world. I mean, we're leveraging technologies and knowledge to be able to bring about an aggregately better shift in what we know to be the world and human experience for everybody else. And that would be the aspiration of you guys as well, I, I imagine. Given that there's so many divergent perspectives, you know, people probably don't wish harm upon each other, but they might have very, very different perspectives about whether we should do this kind of AGI research or this kind. You know, people might, you know, fight tooth and nail, even though they have nothing personal in common. Keeping in mind, I guess, all the different um, industries and domains involved, all the different perspectives involved, but that we're all aiming to work towards kind of the same betterment ideal, what do you think we as scientists, as thought leaders, need to keep in mind in order to progress together towards something aggregately better? Well, I think... Um the key to that is is transparency and um, communicating what you're working on, um, trying to create things in, in less of a one-off fashion. Sometimes in academia, uh, you can build whatever you need to um, run an experiment to write your paper and then you move on. And uh, all the work you've done is, is lost to the rest of the world other than uh, the findings in a paper. Um, so whatever can be done to uh, um, build technology in a way that other people can can build on it, um, I think that's that's the key to, to progress is being able to stand on the shoulders of others instead of everyone having to reinvent the wheel. The yeah. So being able to, uh, I, I guess, sort of document and share all the different developments that different people are working on, but that at the same time you had mentioned be transparent about what we're working on, um, presumably, I suppose, to keep some level of transparency. You know, it'll eventually get to the point where, like right now, it's pretty hard to make an atomic bomb, um, but it might not be all that hard to make some pretty dangerous nanotech stuff in 20 years or 10 years from now. So is the transparency also a little bit of a protective measure in addition to the proliferation of knowledge in general? Well, that's an interesting point. I wasn't thinking about it that way. I was thinking more about it in terms of, um, you know, make sure people know what you're working on so that uh, uh, people aren't wasting valuable human cycles on, on problems other people have already solved. Um, I think just from a practical perspective, from my own experience in, in grad school, it's easy to kind of... Uh, put the blinders on and just build whatever you need to do what you need to do and, yeah. and I'm trying to start a company around some of the things I was working on I, I wish I had taken more advantage of existing technologies that I could have built on top of that um, would make it easier to scale up the kinds of things I'm working on now that now I'm having to rewrite to take yeah. advantage of um, existing platforms um, and uh, I think that that kind of stuff goes goes on a lot in academia, where um, um, a lot of pieces of research could be uh, working together, but uh, other people don't know it exists or realize if they had made one decision and 
terms of another, instead of another, in terms of technical design, um, they could have had something that could have had more impact because more people could have actually um, integrated it into other things they were working on. I, I totally agree, and I think that's been the case forever. I think so many of us would have, if we could stand on any giant that ever was before us, I mean, if we only knew all of them, you know, if we only knew all the, and you would use the interesting term, wasting human cycles, which I think is kind of a curious sort of a way of putting it, but I, but I think that's a cool way of putting it too. Um, in, in terms of stuff you're working on now and ways people can learn about it, I know I had found, maybe it was on an MIT website or maybe it was an old blog of yours, but it was pretty old school stuff and it said it listed a bunch of different things about you. I don't know where that link is now for your personal blog and or where people can learn about your company too. Uh, so the company is giantotter.com. Cool. Where, how, where did the name come from, out of curiosity? <laughs> well, the, the giant otter is an incredible animal. It's a six-foot-long mammal that lives in the Amazon and eats piranhas for breakfast and uh, has natural predators. So it's a, it's a great inspiration for a, for a startup. He's badass. Um, but uh, it's also my founder's favorite animal, and, um, and it's a very social creature, and our, our work is all about simulating social interaction by recording people socializing yep. together online in virtual environments. So for a number of reasons, we, we liked it. <laughs> I, I like it too. It's cool stuff. So, okay, giantotter.com, yep. Yeah, so that's primarily what I'm working on. And then uh, my, my personal website that has links to my research at MIT and in the game industry is uh, jorkin.com. Yeah, that was the one I that was the one I stumbled on first. Yeah, yeah, that's um, it's relatively up to date, maybe a few months out of date, but uh, cool. So people can check you out there as well. Awesome. Well, uh, Jeff, I appreciate it more than you know taking the the time today. I know me and you scrambled about a little bit to yeah, make this yeah, happen, well, but connected. yeah, but uh, it's it's awesome we were able to connect. As soon as I uh, I get the article together, I will let you know. And otherwise, best of luck with the company. And if you have future cool stuff that happens with you guys, if it's a new development or something newsworthy, I'm trying to be connected everywhere I can. I'd love to act as press for you and help you out. Absolutely, yeah. And if you have any follow-up questions, feel free to email me. Cool. Thank you very much, Jeff. I appreciate it, sir. All right. Thanks. Cool. Yep. Have a good one. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, if you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience,